0: Irish Nation, we are officially in bowl season, although Notre Dame doesn't know their bowl game yet. So we're going to cover a regular season wrap up by going through a listener mailbag Q&A session from questions we've got. Uh, we've, we've tried to combine all the different questions we've got. Some of you covered similar topics. So we've, you know, picked one or the other. Hopefully we'll get to as many as we can in this show. As a reminder to all our listeners, go follow the show. The schedule now is going to be more on an ad
1: hoc basis. We're not going to be on a traditional weekly cadence. Not surprising the season's over, so there's just not as much to talk about on a regular cadence. But to keep up with us regular, in addition to just following us, subscribe to make sure that when we do release something, you'll get an alert, and it'll automatically populate on your phone. It'll download. You'll get that alert that'll let you know that we've put out a new show. Now, in terms of... What we do have coming up, Brett mentioned that we got the mailbag for this episode, but we're going to do a bowl game preview, likely in mid-December, as we get closer to what our actual bowl game is, and then potentially one more show on a recruiting update. If there's not a whole lot of incremental new news on it, that may be a shorter one, but we could also just – we're going to go back and forth and decide exactly how how we want to frame that. Maybe it will be a more comprehensive look at the class. We'll see. We'll we'll decide that as we get closer to it. And then we're also going to do a couple more shows – Uh, later to grade the season then, and then also a way too early look ahead to next year. Those will be in January. And then after that, closer to spring practice, we'll do some shows then. And then after that, we'll just kick it all the way back up again for season three, uh, as we approach fall camp.
0: It's crazy how fast season two of Gyrish Talk has, has flown by. I think between all the different games we've gone to, me starting in Columbus, we're both at Clemson, you getting married, honeymoon, it just feels like this fall has flown by, and, and, and we're already putting a bow heading into the holidays here on Season 2 of Geirish Talk. But with that, let's get into the questions. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is my go-to when betting on football this holiday season. Same game parlays, easy and fast payouts, player prop options, and so much more available on DraftKings.
1: Right now, new customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Check it out. Right now, everyone can earn up to a 100% boost with DraftKings' stepped-up same-game
0: parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place a same-game parlay, and combine multiple bets like which team will win, player props, point totals, and more. The more legs you add, the bigger the boost, the bigger your shot to win big. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use code T-P-P-N. That's
1: T-P-P-N. Place a $5 bet on any NFL team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code T-P-P-N. Minimum age of 21 and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details.
0: I'm proud of those guys. And you know what?
1: It is hard to win football games. It's hard, and so I'm so proud of that group of
0: guys. For our listener mailbag section, we're going to alternate asking and answering questions. Mike, I'll kick things off with a question for you. In the bowl game here at time of recording, it's obviously before the championship, conference championship week, before the last playoff ranking committees have come out. So what's your prediction on where Notre Dame will go bowling, and will everyone get the matchup we crave And get to see Notre Dame take on Brian Kelly and LSU in a bowl game.
1: Yeah, I mean, that would be a great storyline, no question. We get a, get a a match with uh, Bayou Brian. I'd have to get out the big pot, do a big crawfish boil, head back down. I'd bring my whole
0: family.
1: Yeah, yeah, not a bad, not a bad, this is not an impression podcast, but. I would say as far as, as far as that goes, that was actually pretty solid.
0: That was a now, better impression of Brian Kelly than Brian Kelly's impression of southern people saying family.
1: That impression is what Brian Kelly's family wish, wishes that he sounded like when he, when he pronounced family. <laughs> <laughs> um, now moving on to the actual question. So, uh, for starters, and this is where the USC game was, was disappointing because we, I think we were all guilty of looking ahead and thinking, oh yeah, if we beat USC, we potentially could maybe sneak into a New Year's Six Bowl. We, we definitely could have been on our way to a New Year's Six Bowl with, with USC. You know, we certainly would have needed some chaos to happen. Some of that definitely did happen that would have opened up a path, but unfortunately it wasn't meant to be the one thing that we had to do is beat USC and we, we obviously didn't. So we can throw that out. Um, and we in our last episode, well, I guess our last two episodes, two episodes ago, actually, we were talking a little bit about bowl game projections and ones the kept getting mentioned were the Holiday Bowl and Gator Bowl, and now our bowl projections are basically split between those. We have actually never played in the Holiday Bowl. Our opponents in this would likely be a ranked team in UCLA or Utah, maybe Washington, Oregon State, or Oregon, but one of essentially it would be one of the other Pac-12 teams all bunched up in the top 25. Personally, I think if you're looking for an interesting matchup, I think that this is the best way for us to ensure that we'd be playing a top 25 opponent. I think you get a beatable top 25 team and again it would be one in one in the Pac 12. So, I think that this is I think this is an interesting option. Um, you know, we'll see if it happens. Now, the other option is the Gator Bowl and this would be against a tier 2 SEC team, SEC team. So, this is a jumbled mess of options. It could be anyone from South Carolina, Mississippi State, Ole Miss. Ole Miss, it it is an interesting team because they started out really hot and then they fell off Pretty close to the end, Lane Kiffin, there were a bunch of rumors about him going to Auburn and then he ended up sticking around, signed a big new deal at, uh, at Ole Miss. Um, I will say, obviously anytime you play an SEC team, there's a little extra attention, I think, that, that goes into it. But at the end of the day, these are unranked teams and I, to me, that feels like a bit of a bummer. There's not as much ex- excitement South around Carolina that. South
0: Carolina did get ranked now and I think Mississippi State's maybe hanging on at, at eight and four, but, but two eight and four teams that Probably not quite as successful seasons as some of those Pac-12 squads.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe, maybe it is, maybe the team that is, is ranked that we end up facing if it's, it's South Carolina, but, um, definitely we could be facing an unranked team. So I, you know, I, if it's a matchup like that, I think I would prefer, prefer the, uh, the holiday bowl, but I think things could get interesting. If LSU, for instance, if they get absolutely annihilated by Georgia, which is possible, Georgia's a really good team. They have a talent level that is at the very top of college football. LSU could fall back in the rankings, which could move South Carolina up to the Citrus Bowl. If that happens, LSU could fall to the Gator Bowl. I think if you are on the committee that's in charge of picking the matchup for the Gator Bowl, I think a Notre Dame-LSU matchup would be very enticing. Um, so I think overall, just to answer the question, though, if we want the best bowl matchup, and I, I already said this before, I, I think our preference is for the Holiday Bowl against a top-20 Pac-12 opponent, but... If LSU does, if they do slip far enough to potentially be an opponent for Notre Dame in the Gator Bowl, I actually might prefer that. I think that would be really interesting. Um, I think that the opportunity to beat Brian Kelly in a bowl game, that would be, that would be a very satisfying end of the season. I can actually think of a few things that would be more satisfying than that.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so I think the answer to the question is go dogs.
1: Yeah. Now, Brett. Uh, now I'm going to ask you a question. So here's another question that we got from our listeners. And not a surprise, this is a big topic that's – uh it was a big topic this year. It's going to be a big topic this offseason. The question is, do we think quarterback play is really the limiting factor on this team, or are there more factors at work
0: here? Yeah, we talk about this a lot. If if you go into the advanced analytics on talent and, and where talent sits on a roster and how that projects – to a team's performance, elite offensive line and defensive line dictates who are top 25 teams. So if if you have an elite blue chip offensive line, a defensive line, and you're able to win in the trenches, game in, game out, down the stretch, that's going to win you games to the point where you're a top 25 team. And that's what we saw this year. Like our offensive line and defensive line kept us in the USC game. Our defensive line hung in there against Ohio State. Our offensive line absolutely won the Clemson game like week in and week out. We're a top 25 team because of our offensive line and defensive line is the strengths of this team. The formula to be a top five team is elite quarterback play, elite wide receiver play, and then elite cornerback play to stop another elite teams, quarterbacks and wide receivers. And we've seen this time and time again um, against Clemson in the college football playoff a few years ago. Julian Love gets injured And it was a close game when he goes down. Our elite cornerback goes down. We're playing Trevor Lawrence, an elite quarterback. And in a blink of an eye, he misses three drives. And they score three touchdowns for 21 points. And the game's out of hand. And so we saw it again in the Alabama um, Cotton Bowl college football playoff game where Devontae Smith and Mac Jones and, and a host of other players just absolutely torched us off the field. And Notre Dame hasn't had that. Buckner had the recruiting pedigree. Jerkovich, Zaire, Wimbush, we've had top 100 quarterback recruits. They just haven't panned out. And part of that is because we've had top 100 recruits. We haven't had top 30. We haven't had five stars and quarterback is a boomer bust position for sure, but they hit way more often when you get into that five star level. And beyond that, it's, it's boomer bust. And we've actually found the most production out of guys like Drew Pine and Ian Book and Tom Reese who are not top 300. They're not even four-star. They're you know low-end four-star or three-star recruits. But those guys in these big games just don't have what it takes to absolutely transcend a team and go win a college football playoff game. And we've talked about this on previous shows. The only team that's really gotten the job done without an absolute elite quarterback is Georgia. And Georgia had one of the all-time great defenses in college football history that's really hard to replicate. And they did it with number one recruiting class after number one recruiting class after number one recruiting class, or at least in the top three. And so either Notre Dame needs to be a top two or three talented team at every other position, or we need to come up with an elite quarterback. So yeah, I think going from top 25 to top five, um, going from making the college football player for being in the conversation, to actually winning a college football playoff game, all of the data tells you that you need a Trevor Lawrence, you need a Jalen Hurts, you need um, a Justin Fields, like you need a Joe Burrow. Those are the elite players, along with the wide receivers and cornerbacks, to supplement that passing game that really elevates top 25 teams to elite championship contenders. That rolls into another question we got. Where do you think Drew Pine enters the 2023 season on the quarterback depth chart? Will it be Drew Pine, Tyler Buckner, incoming freshman four-star Kenny Minchie, or a potential transfer that will be starting for Notre Dame in next year's opener?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Pine was certainly up and down this year. There was a stretch around the middle of the season where he looked really good. I think he rolled off three games in a row where he was putting up some pretty impressive stats then he came back down to earth, and then he actually closed the season on a pretty good note against USC. He had a really good, really good game against USC. But something that we've mentioned is that he's someone who just has a lot of physical limitations. So I think I'm of the opinion that he coming into next year, I think he's number two. I think Buckner's healthy. Clearly, he offers way more upside than Pine. We we know who Pine is, and he's pretty average. He's not going to be someone who is going to take you over the top. He can't win you games single handedly. He's not on that level. If we have a just dominant team reg- throughout every other position, I think he's someone who could be enough of a game manager to, to, uh, to not hold you back necessarily. But based on what you're saying on your, on your uh, prior answer, Brett, which I agree is if you want the formula for taking it to the next level, you need to have that elite quarterback. And that's, so, I, Buckner does have that. He has that potential. The problem is he just hasn't gotten any reps. He's just been, hurt so many of the past, uh, the past seasons that he hasn't gotten those reps to, to really develop. So, oh, I think Pine is not the long-term answer. I think if Buckner's healthy and can stay healthy, I think that he's potentially the guy here. Um, but there are other things that we got to consider here too. So I'm going to talk about Minchie. He's the number 206 recruit that we just got. Big recruiting flip. The context here is important on this recruiting class. We're going heavily after some other recruits. Dante Moore was the one that apparently he was a silent commit the staff went all in on we thought we were getting that finally getting that that top five top 10 overall quarterback but then he he basically flipped he didn't flip but he basically changed his mind and went to Oregon so he kind of we kind of like left standing at the altar without anything and then we had to go searching for someone so I think this is a really good result he's a really good recruit I think especially given the circumstances that it was looking like we weren't going to get anyone who's impactful we got Mitchie it really helps round out the class and it's a piece that we really need. But I don't think that he's a day five or a day one a day one uh five star to to change the program uh caliber type player. I think he's someone who could develop but not day one. Now moving on to the other important aspect here and that's the transfer portal. And the transfer portal is so important in modern college football. You look at so many teams that have won the national championship, so many players who've won the Heisman, many of them were transfer portal players. So I think I think there there could potentially be some options here. There's some players like Devin O'Leary from North Carolina State. Seasoned guy could come in maybe be the next Jack Cohn, Um, especially if Buckner isn't healthy or can't come back to form. I think a grad transfer could be a better option here than Drew Pine. So I guess reverting back to my point on Drew Pine being number two, I think he's at least number two on the depth chart. He could potentially be further down depending on what happens with the transfer portal. The key here with the transfer portal, though, is the question on elite recruits. Could we actually get an elite recruit from the transfer portal? Could could we get someone like Justin Fields, Jalen Hurts, Joe Burrow? We're going to get to that a little bit more in our next question, but it's really, really difficult, and a lot of that falls in Notre Dame's administration. They basically just make it challenging for an undergrad to transfer their credits over. Um, But I do think there, there could be a shot here. There's not always a shot, but it looks like there could potentially be some players that could fit the bill here. I'm going to list out the top some of the top 10 QBs from the last two recruiting classes. So if you look at starters, Quinn Ewers, Texas, Caleb Williams, USC, Drake May, UNC, J.J. McCarthy at Michigan, Salter at Liberty, Connor Weigman at Texas A&M, and then Tyler Buckner at Notre Dame. So those are players who were starters, or at least named a starter, at a point this year. Now, other players from that top 10 uh, primed to take the keys. So that's uh, Sam Heward. I don't know if I got that name right. Drew Aller at Penn State and then Nick Evers at Oklahoma, uh, and then and then Brady Allen at Purdue. So these are players, they didn't start, but they're probably going to take over. Now, there are a few guys who are likely going to start if the guy ahead of them goes to the NFL, and that's Walker Howard at LSU and Ty Thompson at Oregon. That leaves you with a handful of guys who are in legit quarterback battles who could be transfer options. So some of these names are Gunnar Stockton, Brock Vandegrift, Georgia, Kyle McCord, Devin Brown, they're at Ohio State. Malik Murphy at Texas, Ty Simpson at Alabama, Cade Klubnik at Clemson. These are players One that... One more guy,
0: by the way, to add to that list was the top 60 recruit number seven overall in 2020 um, Card Huts, or H- Hudson Card at Texas Yes, who filled in for Quinn Q- 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 years. He just announced today, we're recording this on Tuesday the 29th, he just announced today he's entering the transfer portal and specifically said he's looking for a winning program in, in a Power 5 situation. So... You know, Notre Dame does fit that bill, whether or not the administrative stuff works there, but add Hudson Card to that list as well.
1: Definitely. And that's breaking news, as you said, as of today. And I've already seen on message boards, some some fans are are clamoring for that. There's a little bit. I don't know if our staff has been in touch with them yet, but it sounds like there could be a little momentum there, obviously very early. So we'll have to see. But basically the answer here is, I don't think Pine is someone who's going to be at the top of the depth chart. I think it's either going to be Buckner or I think it's going to be a transfer portal option. And the transfer portal, it's tough for Notre Dame to get an elite guy, but it does look like there could maybe be, it could me it could maybe be in the cards this year. Again, we don't know how restrictive the administration is, but already we have, uh, we, we have a, a number of people who could potentially fit the bill here. Now moving on to the next question.
0: By the way, so the solid verbal college football podcast I, I reference all the time, co-host, um, Ty Hildebrand is a big Notre Dame fan. He had a running joke the entire season that whenever Notre Dame played a game, Marcus Freeman would leave his business card in the locker of the backup quarterback. So Miller Moss, a five-star recruit at USC, who's backing up, or a four-star recruit at USC, who's backing up Caleb Williams, or the Del Rio, forget his name at Syracuse, who came in in replacement of Garrett Trader, or Cade Klubnick, the five-star backup at Clemson, Ty Hildebrand would just keep you like, you think Marcus Freeman's like leaving a business card behind of like, hey, if, if you're not starting, give me a call this offseason. And it was like, you know, handing out his number after the game. I, I, so I, I definitely would love did to have him, that, but I think that's pretty
1: funny. I'm, I'm going to take that one step further. I'm, I'm picturing him leaving his business card and then a signed headshot of him in like a jukey, juke GQ level photo shoot type situation. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's not, I don't, is there anything in the rules that say you can't do that? I don't know. I mean, I think it's all. There, are, it's no, there are no
0: rules anymore, right? There are I, no I, doubt. I it's, it's not all, like he's,
1: yeah, he's not leaving money behind. All
0: is fair in love and recruiting.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's basically where we're at. Uh, but apparently the ND administration doesn't see it that way. But uh, so, which, which takes us into our next question. And Brett, that's what is the biggest thing limiting this program right now?
0: Yeah, and I'll I'll combine that with another because of the answer. It's the ability to take undergrad transfers. We actually had Mick Asaf on the show a couple weeks ago to talk about NIL and potential restrictions and opportunities there. And his answer to this question was undergrad transfers. We completely agree. Thought thought Mick had a great response, and so wanted to spend some detail on what that limitation is. Um, and we're specifically talking about undergrad transfers, but I'll walk through both grad transfers and undergrad. And it comes down to Notre Dame's admission standards. So they've loosened up a little bit. So if you're an undergrad recruit coming in out of high school, the admission standards will be flexible on things like your GPA and SAT or ACT test scores. But all undergrad admitted students need a minimum number of high school classes that include three math. One must be, I think, algebra two or calculus, three science, including either chemistry or physics, and two foreign languages, sign language doesn't count. I just think that's funny. It's a huge hurdle. There's anonymous sources out of admissions over the year that says that in any given recruiting cycle, about two-thirds of the top 100 recruits are not recruitable by Notre Dame. There's similar issues for transfers as well. So starting with grad transfers, this is easier. A player needs an undergrad degree at another school and come to Notre Dame into a one-year grad program of which Notre Dame has actually built several that are very easy to get into. Um, there's one that's like a master's degree in finance where it's designed for non-business student undergrads to kind of come in and take like one year of intro finance courses to help them better prepare for you know business careers, generally speaking. It's a pretty easy program to get into. And so it's easy to say grad transfers from another school can go and get into that one-year program. The problem is... That the elite quarterbacks and really the elite players generally speaking that are looking to transfer probably haven't graduated yet. And if they have graduated, they're now in the NFL. And so if they haven't graduated, they're going to go into the undergrad transfer bucket, which I'll get to next. What that leads to is you're getting guys like Jack Cohn. You're getting game managers, you know, they've, they've gotten a degree. They were okay. They're probably not good enough to go to the NFL yet. Um, they're maybe getting passed up by a younger guy on their roster. Like they're they're flawed, right? They aren't all American Heisman caliber candidates. They're not Joe Burrow, Justin Fields, Quinn Ewers. They're not guys that lost out in a battle as an underclassman to another five star and are now looking to go win a Heisman or go get into the NFL, by, by transferring to another program, that's what brings us to the undergrad transfer path at Notre Dame, the academic bar. Um, is pretty steep here there's no gpa or test score or anything like that but all undergrad student transfers must demonstrate an ability to graduate on time in four years that's notre Dame's standard for an undergrad transfer so in other words you basically need to be taking full class schedules at your previous university with a class schedule that aligns with notre dame's graduation requirements and Notre Dame's graduation requirements are pretty steep. If you're in the business school, you need an econ class, you need calculus, you need 9 business foundation courses. If you're in science, uh the the College of Science, you need two calc classes, two chemistry classes, two physics classes, and an intermediate proficiency in a foreign language. And those are all like your freshman sophomore type, you know, intro classes at Notre Dame. In arts and letters, the requirements vary a lot by major, so there's not one set of things, but just as an example, Mike and I were econ majors, And you had to take both stats and econometrics. They're two really challenging classes. And so the problem is, even if they're on track to graduate in four years, if they're not taking the right classes at another school, they're not going to get there. And also, let's be clear, five stars at SEC or Big Ten or Big 12 or ACC football programs who are vying to be starting QBs and going to the NFL, they aren't taking 15 credit hours. They aren't taking all of these advanced classes they need to take their freshman, sophomore years. And so it limits the pool of who's eligible so significantly. So in recent years, here's the Notre Dame undergrad transfers. Brandon Joseph from Northwestern, Ben Skoranek from Northwestern, Chris Smith from Harvard, and Alohi Gilman from the Navy, from the Naval Academy. The trend there is those are all highly competitive academic schools in Northwestern, Harvard, and the Naval Academy. And Notre Dame has not been willing to loosen this standard. So when you look at teams that have made the college football playoff or or have truly been what I would put in the bucket of national contenders, they've all gone after this. And whether or not they've won with this method or have attempted it, they they are all attempting it. So Ohio State went after Justin Fields from Georgia. Oklahoma went after Jalen Hurts from um, Alabama. Alabama went after Jameer Gibbs. Um, from Georgia Tech, of all places. LSU went after Joe Burrow from Ohio State. Even Georgia, who won the national championship with Stetson Bennett, started the year going at with, with JT Daniels, a USC transfer, who then got injured and was kind of playing poorly and got benched. Even Michigan went after Shea Patterson a few years ago from Ole Miss. So every other major program trying to contend at some point in time has tried to elevate their program with an elite skills position player. Notre Dame's University is just not even allowing it. So if you're an alumni, especially if you're a benefactor a booster, start emailing Jack Swerbrick. Start emailing the development office. Start emailing the admissions office. If Notre Dame truly wants to get serious about winning a national championship, they need to come up with a solution for undergrad transfers that is more than looking at Northwestern and Harvard and Naval Academy. And you don't have to go all the way to say academics don't matter, by the way. There's a middle ground to say... They need to be on track to graduate, but not in four years. It might be in five years. It might be in six years. They might need to kind of start college classes over, right? So you can maintain whatever graduation requirements you have, but loosen it in a way that lets our football team go after talent that the administration is currently just saying it's a non-starter. Um There are some articles out there. Pete Sampson's alluded to it that the administration – is working with Marcus Freeman to come up with a solution. This is all of course closed door with no specifics and, and who knows what that means. But to me, this is the biggest Notre Dame storyline and it's boring. Talking about college admissions and football programs is, is a boring topic. My, my wife works in college admissions. So, you know, it's maybe not boring in, in our household. It's, it's a career, but, but generally speaking, people don't tune into football podcasts to talk about, um, admissions. And undergraduate transfer admission right now is the biggest obstacle facing this program because of the requirement that they need to be demonstrating academic progress to graduate in four years. All right. That was a long-winded one. I promise the next will hopefully be quicker. Um, Mike, are you concerned that Freeman's response to all of the offensive questions he got this year generally said, our goal is to run the ball more And maybe a related question. Um, you know, this show has been pretty critical of Tom Reese, especially in the first half of the season, but it seems like Mike and Brett have changed their tune recently. Is Tom Reese for sure back next year? And how do you grade him out over the course of the season?
1: Yeah. So I'll start with the, that sec, like the second part on, on Tom Reese. So I think one major criticism still remains and that's evaluating talent and ability for the guys on his roster, particularly as we go into the season. So I'll use an example with Jack Cohn. So Jack Cohn, we switched to the quick passing game after five games. This was way too long. We stumbled out the gate a bit. Our offense wasn't working as well as it could have. There was plenty of data that showed that Jack Cohn was not going to be as effective with these long-developing plays, and we need to really push the ball out quickly. Once we did that, we were much more effective, but there was some damage that had already been done. And then if I bring that back to this year, if we look at running back – Touches and snaps to start this year. That wasn't great either. There are certain examples with certain types of run plays that were more effective than others. Um, particularly runs to the outside. We tended to be running it more up the middle. We were relying a little bit more on our offensive line earlier in the season. Reese seemed to think that the offensive line had gelled perhaps before they had. And I think that cost us a bit in, in certain, uh, in, in certain games. And then. Another one is just Drew Pine's performances against BYU and then taking too long to adjust and that ultimately him the Stanford game. So there's just examples here where he doesn't have a great pulse on certain capabilities of his players and it comes back to bite us in certain games. Now, it's important to note that he does eventually adjust. So this team, we really had to be a run-the-damn-ball team with a thin wide receiver room with a lot of younger players and a backup QB with, with significant limitations. So I think that's just who we, who we were this year. And Reese knew who that was, but there were certain specifics that maybe he missed out on. The play calling, especially later in the season, we had a lot of misdirection concepts. We've highlighted a ton. In particular, the increase in play action in the last few games. It seems like Reese finally noticed that those play action plays with Pine were actually very effective. And then, as I alluded to a minute ago, a way heavier mix of runs to the perimeter rather than up the middle. Those were working way better, and and Reese finally adjusted. So it's not like he's someone who just sticks with what he initially went with no matter what. He does adjust. It just can be a little frustrating at times because if we had been doing this from the beginning, it's possible that we avoid uh, some of these letdown games that we've had. So Marshall and Stanford, if we had a perimeter-led running attack against those teams, I don't know. I think think there's a pretty good chance that we win those games. So – I think the complaint here is maybe more that he could have a better read on it from the beginning. But you do have to give him credit here for making adjustments. He he showed up to be a really good play caller, I think, overall over the course of 12 games, even if it took him a little while to find his group. You have to keep in mind, he's still a young offensive coordinator. I think the fact that he's adjusting these situations, that does kind of bode that he's – that does give you a sense that he's learning and potentially should be getting better year after year. If you're improving as the season goes on, I I do think that that's a good sign. There's also some other context we got to mention here. So – Basically, again, we kind of mentioned this. He wasn't handed a, a great a great, uh, a great, deck of cards with returning production. Basically, it was just entirely Michael Mayer. Last year's skill position players by snap count. I'm going to list them out right here. So Mike Mayer, number one. But then you got Jack Cohn, Kevin Austin, Braden Lindsey, Kyron Williams, Avery Davis, George Takacs, and before injury, Joe Wilkins. So a lot, most of these guys were gone. You had Braden Lindsey, but Brayden Lindsey, we didn't utilize him a ton this year. Most of these other guys were gone, and there were a lot of really good players in there that left. So um, really, he was, he was working with an inexperienced team, and you had a quarterback situation where initially you started out with a new quarterback, but then he got hurt, and then you were dealing with a new guy. So not a great situation to be in. Now, another point I'm going to mention is just in the wide receiver room as a whole, I think we needed to do a double-click there. Since 2017... There's been quite a bit of attrition in this room. It really has been gutted at times. So starting we're, – again, we're going to start with 2017. and So these are players who could have been COVID super seniors, and we're going to exclude guys here that immediately switched to defense like Cam Hart and Xavier Watts. From the 2017 class, you had Jafar Armstrong and Michael Young, both transferred. Avery Davis was back for his sixth year, but then he tore his ACL preseason. He's someone who would have been a, a, a very productive contributor this year. 2018 class, Kevin Austin goes to the NFL but doesn't make a roster. He was one of those players at the time that we thought could really benefit from coming back this year, and he didn't. Um, so it's a bit of a shame how that worked out. Brayden Lindsey's on the team. We didn't get as much production out of him this year as we were hoping. We were hoping he'd take a step forward. Lawrence Key is also from that 20, 2018 class. Micah Jones, they both transfer. And then Joe, Joe Wilkins had a season-ending injury. So not nothing really out of that. 2019, no wide, no wide receivers in the class. Uh, just a total bust by Del Alexander and Chip Long. 2020, we got a five-star recruit, Jordan Johnson, but then he transferred. It doesn't look like he's really panning out, but again, that was another big miss. 2021 20, and 2022, it's actually looking pretty good, but it is early. And these are younger players, so they haven't fully developed yet. So we're not getting uh the production out of them that you know, you'd be getting out of more experienced players. So Deion Colsey, Deion Colsey has really come on the second half of the year, which is really promising because earlier in the year, it was looking like it was taking him a little bit longer than some other guys. So that's a good sign because he was someone who came in with a lot of, really with a lot of attention and a lot of hype. Lorenzo Styles didn't take the jump that we were expecting this year, but still had a solid year and had some good moments. He's someone who I think, I think with another offseason, he can get back on track. Jaden Thomas, he's had some good moments this year. And then Tobias Merriweather, who's also flashing flash potential. So these guys are all really young, and I feel good about them, but they need a little bit more – they need some more development before they become true impact players. But overall, from 2017 to 2020, excluding the underclassmen, that three-year span, there were nine recruits and five transferred, only one in the NFL, and we had three on the roster – and two had season ending injuries. The other one, Lindsay, we really didn't he didn't really take the jump that we were hoping. Um, we didn't really get a whole lot of production out of him. Now the next question that I'm coming to, and this isn't this is a, a listener mailback question, this is just a question that I have that I need to pose related to this, is is this a problem that all these guys transferred? You know, maybe we maybe we should have developed better. That's certainly on Dell Alexander. It's no secret that Dell Alexander did a poor job uh keeping these guys around and developing the room. But it is college football. I think transfers are a part of college football now. The problem is tying it back to what Brett was just talking back, talking about is that we aren't getting transfers back. It's become a one way outflow of talent with no inflow. So we lost all these guys. If we were very open about the transfer portal and we were able to plug these holes, we, we could be in a totally different situation. Look how many players USC brought in last year from the transfer portal and USC, as much as we like to hate on them in a lot of ways that are actually like not that far off from Notre Dame from an academic standpoint. So if an institution like USC is okay really utilizing the transfer portal, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it should be that far of a cry for Notre Dame to kind of get in a position where we could. We're not there right now and there's a lot that needs to happen. Brett, you alluded to Freeman doing some back channel conversations potentially with some people in the administration. So maybe that'll, that'll help. But as of now, it's difficult for us to plug these holes if we have a big outflow of talent. <clears throat> and so I think that's, again, that's like another point that's, that's worth mentioning of Tommy Reese's situation. I think, I think he has done, I think he's shown over the course of the year again that he's, uh, he's done a good job with the deck that he's been given. He doesn't always adjust as quickly as you'd like. And then now tying that back to the first question, I'll give a really short answer on the Marcus Freeman component am i concerned that he his answer is typically to to run the damn ball when someone asks about the offense i'm not cuz that's just kind of who we have to be you know hopefully next year hopefully next year we figure out the quarterback situation we have someone who's maybe not elite but certainly a step up hopefully the wide receivers continue to develop like i said there's some promising young talent that we have right now we don't have a ton of depth yet but we're starting to get there hopefully if that resolves itself in a way that's uh, very positive then maybe i think then freeman freeman I think Freeman would probably give a different answer.
0: And and I think Freeman and Reese are highly focused on knowing this is what it takes. Like I think Freeman keeps saying we need to run the ball because he knows who the current roster is, but that is not what he and Reese are constructing in the future. So you look at Colsey and Styles and Thomas and Meriwether, but there's three more top 200 recruits coming in at the wide receiver position in the next class alone. We're bringing in CJ Carr in the 2024 class. who's a five-star QB. So they are, you know, saying we need to run the damn ball with this roster. They're building a roster in the future that will not be constructed like that. Again, you got to make up for it in transfers. You can't let transfers be a one-way street, so I agree with all that. But it seems like Reese and Freeman are doing the right things to correct this and therefore deserve time to let that recruiting play through. If we're sitting here in three years and we're still saying the same thing, then we need to have a different discussion. But I think right now they're still trying to clean up some chip long and Dell Alexander stuff at a really critical position. And they, they deserve time on that.
1: Definitely. Now, Brett, I'm going to flip this question back to you and all the questions. Interestingly, we've gotten have been related to the offense, which not surprising based on the strengths and weaknesses of our football time team this year. Here's one about the defense. And my question is, well, the listener question is how concerned are you about losing defensive starters next year?
0: Yet yeah, transfers is always a big long-term concern. So that, you know, definitely comes into play, but maybe less so um on the defensive side of the ball. However, there's a big, um looming returning production concern here for 2023. And, you know, looking at the offense, just by comparison, we're projected to return seven starters. We'll lose Lindsey, but you could actually argue it's maybe an upgrade with the backups behind him. We'll lose Patterson and Lug on the offensive line, which will definitely hurt um, two of our better offensive linemen. And the nice part there is we've got a lot of depth. And then we'll lose Mike Mayer, who that will be catastrophic. Like the offense this year with Mike Mayer would have been in absolute shambles. Um At times it still was even with him. And so losing Mike Mayer will hurt. But we bring back a lot of depth too. We bring back a lot of depth now in the wide receiver room, which we were not able to say the last couple of years all three running backs will be back which was a great three-headed monster this year um Pine and and um Buckner are back so assuming everyone's healthy some some decent depth there so the offense will be fine on the defense the Animalola brothers Isaiah Foskey Chris Smith Howard Cross um that's 5 of the 8 rotation players are all um projected to probably graduate there's a chance Howard Cross comes back for a fifth year. I hope he does. I think it would really help his NFL career. So fingers crossed on Howard Cross. Um That's a lot of crossing. But for sure, the Adam Alola brothers and Fosky are gone. Um, arguably, our two best defensive linemen, three of our four or five best defensive linemen. And then all three linebackers are seniors. Jack Kaiser, J.D. Bertrand, and, and Maris Leofau, who, who got the most snaps this year. There's a chance all three come back. Um I don't know for sure. Um, if you assume they all come back, I'm feeling a lot better. If one of those guys decides they want to transfer and, and go somewhere else or, or try the NFL, um, that would be a big loss. And then Cam Hart, he's a senior. He just announced he is coming back for fifth year, so I think that's really good news. But DJ Brown, Tariq Bracey are gone. Brandon Joseph previously indicated he wants to explore the NFL but unclear if his performance this year really warrants that or if he's going to have to come back for a fifth year. So there's a chance there's three starters gone including both safeties and and the nickel corner um plus Houston Griffith who is a great rotation player at safety adding a lot of depth. Um that's going to really then leave behind, you know, Ben Morrison and Jaden Mickey stepping up, Xavier Watson, Ramon Henderson who kind of been question marks at safety but have played okay so three to five starter or you know rotation players gone on on the defensive line the entire linebacking returning production is going to be up in the air and we won't know until they make announcements and the secondary you know for sure two well for sure three contributors um maybe four pending brandon joseph that's a lot of returning production to replace with some big question marks. So one of the big offseason storylines that I'm looking at is news on guys like Jack Kaiser, J.D. Bertrand, Maris Leofau, Howard Cross, uh, Brandon Joseph. If those guys all come back, I'm feeling a lot better next year. If none of them come back, next year is going to be a struggle. And if it's somewhere in between, we'll have some question marks like you have every year. But returning production on defense definitely projecting as a question mark for the offseason not a given that that will come back with the same experience mike last question around out the show would nine and three next year be considered an improvement or is 10 wins the expectation knowing we have games against ohio state clemson and southern cal
1: love this question it's really interesting It just um just painting a scenario like this, I, I think it's really important to look at different possibilities here. And you also have to look at a lot of what's going on with these other teams, what we're going to be facing next year. So Ohio State, they're going to be replacing C.J. Stroud. They uh, Decent chance the guy who replaces them is, is really good too. But if you're moving on from someone who's a surefire first-round pick, someone who's one of the top college football players in, in the country – um, certainly there is there is likely to be some drop-off there. Now, for USC, Caleb Williams will be back, and he may somehow be even better than he was this year. So that's going to be really tough facing that offense. Clemson is a bit of a question mark here. Moving on to some other teams. I mean, those three games, I would say those are all ones that could go either way. It looks like Ohio State, depending on how things go, like I said, maybe they're not going to be as tough. USC may be even better, and then Clemson could maybe go other way. Um, moving on to some some other ones that are – More automatic. So it would be Navy, Tennessee State, Central Michigan. Stanford should be here too, but we obviously learned that lesson the hard way this year. Um, but let's just throw them in there for now and assume that we, we take care of business. Wake Forest, they're replacing Sam Hartman. So you likely have a big drop off there. However, the other games on the schedule are, are actually pretty tough. It's not like we're facing elite teams, but Pitt, North Carolina State, Louisville, Duke. These are ACC teams that, they should have pretty high aspirations going into next year. And if we don't show up for any of these games, we could definitely lose them. And if uh if we have some matchups that are a little tricky in it, they could they could definitely take advantage of them and, and utilize it against us. Um, you know, again if we're not having our best day. This kind of ties back actually to a question that we had in the uh last off season. And this was as we were looking into the into the Freeman area, and that was we posed the question if the team went thirty six and twelve over the next four years. Would that be acceptable? We just posed that question just to see what the, what, what the fan base's uh, reaction to that was. And the fans and listeners of the show, we had a resounding answer that that wouldn't be acceptable. So that would be three losses per year, basically. So nine and three every year. And, and you know, I think, I think with Andy's schedule, you gotta, we're not even talking about playing Bama in 24 and 25. I think it's just important context. And we learned that this year is that 10 wins is really tough. I, we kind of got a little comfortable with it under Brian Kelly. It, it became expected. And I guess there were moments this year where I, I think the fact that we even got to eight games was uh, eight wins was actually pretty impressive. But uh, it, it shows you really have to have things humming to to win to win 10 games. It's you, you can't have like uh, you can't have like lapses against weak teams that you need to be you, n- you really need to generally beat the teams that you should be and then take a couple games from some pretty some some really good teams. So I think overall, I just think that the answer here, it really depends. So, and we kind of saw that again this year too. So if you're nine and three and you just get blown off the field by Ohio State, USC and lose a bad game to someone like Marshall, I think to me that would be, that would be hard to stomach. Uh, but if you win nine games and you play tough against Ohio State, USC, you look pretty, pretty good in those games, but lose, and then you dominate Clemson kind of like we did this year uh but then lose a tough close game on the on the road to Louisville. We're just making up scenarios, but if you if you show a high potential, to me I think that that makes it easier to stomach. And we saw that this year. I think the fact that we ran USD off, or uh Clemson off the field, that made the season a lot easier to stomach. If that didn't happen, I I probably would be feeling a little bit different. Um and kind of leading into that, it's it's also like the trajectory and how you see certain positions develop. So, if you see a lot of if you if we were to see a lot of improvement at the quarterback position and wide receiver position, um if buckner for instance starts and by the end of the year he's looking like he could be an elite qb that that also would be important context that would make me feel a lot better um same with wide receiver; we have a lot, a lot of guys start to start to emerge but i will say one difference is that there are going to be fewer excuses for freeman this next year he should have a really good grasp of his roster at this point he should uh be settled into the head coaching role he's still inexperienced but he definitely has more of a pulse of how how, how to how to handle the program and handle himself as a as a head coach. So, and then again, another thing is like recruiting momentum. So if it's a season that seems to give us a lot of recruiting momentum, that helps too. If we kind of trail off at the end and the recruiting momentum kind of dies out, that's important context too. So basically the answer to this, I'm kind of dodging it a little bit, but it, it depends. I think if we show a high ceiling and we're competitive with really good teams, and we maybe even beat up on one of those elite teams uh, pretty significantly and we show improvement, particularly at the quarterback and, and receiver, positions, I think I'll feel pretty good. If, if we kind of limp to nine and three and don't really have any high, you know, I would say like really memorable moments from the year to me, that's, that doesn't quite feel the same.
0: For sure. And I think there's a lot of programs, you know, Tennessee for a long time, Florida just did it recently. Auburn seems to be doing it every other year where you have a really great coach who has a lot of success and goes eight and four or seven and five, or has a dumb year, who knows what. And it's really easy to get impatient you put them on the hot seat. Recruits then know the coach is on the hot seat, so they don't want to go play for a coach that they think might get fired. So then recruiting falls up. It almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, if you start getting impatient with coaches, especially the head coach. Coordinators, little different. Um, but if you start getting, you know, impatient with head coaches too early, without context and nuance, you can really ruin a good thing and just – kind of continually be in rebuild mode and and Notre Dame lived that for a long time with Charlie Weiss and Bob Davies and and Ty Willingham. And so I think staying patient with Freeman, looking at context of you could go eight and four next year, you could go nine and three next year and and it might not be the standard, but it's a passing grade and you know, you know what you're building towards 10 wins would of course be great. I don't think this program is at a place to say that's the expectation Particularly when looking at the schedule next week, uh next season, really fun show. Got to cover a lot of great topics that we often don't get to touch on on a week in week out basis when we're so focused on game recaps and, and previews, and we usually just try to pick one other topic to digest. So it was great doing a lot of quick hitters, especially I think digging into QB play and, and transfers is just a, a really great segue for Notre Dame fans heading into the off season. So we enjoyed all the questions we got. It was really fun prepping for this show and. Hopefully fans got some interesting perspective from us as we go into the bowl season. So, uh, with that, we'll be back once we've got a bowl game announcement. But until then, Gyrish. Gyrish.